Welcome to the New Money Review podcast, the future of money in 30 minutes. I'm Paul Amory, the editor of New Money Review. We're a periodical covering the changes in money, which are getting faster and more confusing. New types of money arrive out of nowhere, like Bitcoin. Payments get faster and cheaper. Cash goes out of fashion and mobile payments take over. Some people are on the inside track, others risk being left behind. Money attracts the cleverest criminals who always seem to stay ahead of the game. Our podcast takes a big picture look at these trends. It's not just money that's changing, but technology, finance, law, government and society with it. Each week, we interview a leading expert on one or more of these topics. By listening to the podcast, you can stay up to date with what's going on in money and prepare yourself for what lies ahead. My guest on this episode of the podcast is Andrew Weber, founder and chief executive of a startup called Digital Power Optimization, based in the US. Well, Andrew, welcome to the New Money Review podcast. Could you start by telling listeners a bit about yourself and your area of work? Sure, Paul. Thank you very much and happy to be here. Um, I am, uh, my name is Andrew Weber. I am the CEO of a startup called Digital Power Optimization. And we are working at the nexus of the cryptocurrency space and the uh, energy sector. It's an area that not a lot of people really fully understand, um, but we think the linkage between the two is, is extremely interesting and provides a lot of opportunity uh, going forward. Okay, so, so um, for listeners who are not familiar with the linkages between cryptocurrency and energy, could you expand a bit on what those are? Sure. So, you know, the, the major cryptocurrency that most people are familiar with uh, is Bitcoin, and it's by far the largest market cap in the space. Uh, Bitcoin is created out of thin air effectively by this algorithm that's um, driven by a network of global, a global network of mining computers. And a mining computer is essentially just a computer server that has one specific function. And its function is to guess at the um, code to unlock a portion of this algorithm, uh, the blockchain, um, the Bitcoin blockchain. And that effectively creates new Bitcoin. That's where Bitcoin uh, come from in the first place. They have to be mined into existence. Uh, the same way you would dig up gold from the ground. And so this is a very energy intensive process. And there's a lot of people you know, complaining today about the fact that this network of computers that is creating this Bitcoin blockchain uh, is consuming an awful lot of energy. And you know, presumably some of that energy is clean energy and some of that energy is dirty energy. And so that is something that uh, some, some folks around the, the space object to. And, and we believe here at DPO that there's it's frankly the, the wrong way of looking at it. And it's rather a short-sighted view. And in fact, we believe that, that this mining function can ultimately and, and possibly will turn into what we consider to be a Trojan horse that you know, dramatically accelerates the rate of adoption of, of green energy around the world. Um, as the price of these, of these coins, Bitcoin in particular, goes up, the margin uh, for the mining operators uh, expands dramatically which causes an inflow of new capital into the space, which results in more uh, mining computers being deployed and thus a search for new power uh, to, to run them. And we believe that power in the future is by and large going to be renewable, clean energy, right? I don't, I, don't believe that, I don't believe that most people in most countries are going to allow the construction of new coal plants, for example, to, to continue to grow this network. I think it's going to be driven by renewables and we're one of the first ones really actively taking advantage of that, that linkage. Okay. And how specialized has uh, Bitcoin mining become over the years, over the 12 years since Bitcoin came uh, onto the scene? 
Sure, that's that's an interesting question, actually, because the you know the original um, the original uh, software was being run on essentially home computers. Really, the the strongest piece of computing hardware that the average person owned uh, was their graphics processing unit in their home computer. So for playing video games, uh, these things are extraordinarily powerful, and so you can rig them up to to run the Bitcoin uh, software, the blockchain software, and and create Bitcoin that way. That was in the early days. As the price of Bitcoin has gone up, um, as you would expect, it's attracted more competition into the space. And that hardware has, has evolved from those typical off-the-shelf uh, graphics processing units into specialized computers that are, are built and designed to do only one thing, which is mine cryptocurrency. And as a result of that, you know, it's becoming much more institutionalized than it had been in, in you know, the first half of, of the previous decade where, you know, it was literally a, a collection of sort of, you know, quote unquote, cyberpunks in their basements mining away at this stuff. It's really changed and it's becoming institutionalized now. There are major, major um, Wall Street institutions getting into this. And the mining space is, is part of this ecosystem that is frankly not that well understood, believe it or not, even by the experts that are building some of the fancier and more interesting applications on top of the underlying blockchain technology. But the mining function for Bitcoin, for example, is, um, is, is not really well known by, by a lot of industry insiders that you would think would be well aware of it. And, uh, you know, it, it's, it's now that I should probably make a distinction, given the, the nature of this podcast is about money. Um, Bitcoin is one type of blockchain. It's one type of application that is built on a blockchain. It happens to be the first one and the first one that was, has proliferated the way that it has. But that specifically is called a proof of work blockchain, meaning, as I described, that in order to secure it, you need you know, tens of thousands or millions of computers running and building the various blocks on this blockchain and storing all of this data in this transaction record. There are other types of blockchains, like Ethereum, for example, that are built um, on the same underlying technology, but designed and programmed to do very different things. So in the way that, that the Bitcoin... Uh, blockchain was built for Bitcoin and to do a very certain thing, which was store value and allow that value to be pushed around the globe from one person to another. Ethereum does something a little bit different. It's actually quite a lot different, uh, even though it's built on the same underlying technology. And Ethereum is potentially more relevant to, to, to the world of money in that uh, it allows the facilitation of movement of money around um, much more smoothly than Bitcoin does in many ways. And it allows other functionality like things called smart contracts. Uh, and, you know, we're getting into some of the, the deeper nature of what this stuff is. But it, it allows things to happen on a blockchain that currently take place through traditional financial infrastructure or traditional legal infrastructure that will ultimately be replaced by uh, Ethereum and things that are built upon the Ethereum platform. Oh, okay, um, you, you've explained the you know the link between um, proof of work cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin uh, and um, and energy. Um, you know, taking it a step further, your company's, as I understand it, your company's selling point is to go around the United States to energy producers and to argue to them that they should be devoting some of their power supply to mining cryptocurrency. It is. And we're, you know, like I said, we're really the first ones to, to try to take this angle at it. Most Bitcoin miners uh, approach those power producers and try to purchase power from them 
so that yeah. the the miner himself or itself can then capture all of the economic upside from from their function. And what DPO has proposed is the um, vertical integration of those two functions uh, by and on behalf of the power producer, which really we believe is the key element in that value chain. Um, and so right now, power producers across the United States and in Europe are selling power for you know twenty dollars a megawatt, twenty five, thirty, thirty five dollars per megawatt hour, and DPO offers them a strategy which will capture them effectively a, a net ninety five per megawatt hour. So okay. the upside to them is considerable. It requires a little bit of investment, but by vertically integrating these two structures and DPO acting simply as an outside manager, uh, we we avoid a lot of the regulatory hurdles that would normally occur from you know, a power plant trying to sell power to a third party in this way. And it also allows the value to be captured by, we believe, the correct party that has the, the specific asset that offers the most value to that chain. So ultimately, uh, you know, this can work for multiple types of assets from, from hydro to nuclear, even, even fossil fuel assets if you wanted to. But we think, again, this is mostly going to be driven um, by renewables and in fact may drive renewables. Uh, and in the search for ever greater amounts of power to run this uh, system. And so, you know, we think that, that, like I said, this will be causing an increase in demand for renewable energy. And one of the interesting applications that we see, and we are pitching to a number of wind and solar, de solar developers, is that it's sort of an alternative for storage. Storage right now is the great hurdle that's, that's challenging the renewable energy space. You can produce you know, solar all, all day long, but what do you do at night? And you can you know, have wind, which is effect, you know, extremely cheap and energy efficient, but what if the wind isn't blowing? And so you need to store that power for later usage, and that's very, very costly because the technology isn't quite there yet. And we have proposed to some of these solar and wind developers to say, you know, don't even bother with the battery unless you really need to store that energy that you're producing to light up a home at 10 p.m. Uh, if you need it for that, fine, then you need a battery, you need storage of some type. If you just wanna capture the maximum economic value of that power at any given time, that is a solution DPO can help with, where instead of deploying a battery, just deploy a solution of mining computers and offtake all of that excess energy and your economic capture is gonna be you know, two, three X what you would have gotten by investing in a battery structure. Okay, let's take a step back for a second and talk about um, you know the impact of uh, uh, renewable energy supplies on the you know the overall um, uh, power grid uh, in, in different countries. Um, I understand that there, there's been an increasing trend towards negative energy prices at certain time you know uh, in certain parts of the country or so around the world uh, at certain times of day, depending on the the, the structure of the grid uh, and and. The type of power. You know, what, what's what's causing that, and um, what's causing the negative prices, and how can cryptocurrency mining fit into the solution? Yes, it's a it's a really interesting question, and that's you know that's really part of the key of our thesis here is that as the renewable infrastructure is built out across the United States, what you're going to see is effectively what's happening in Europe today, which is the you know Europe is ahead of the United States in the rollout of of renewable energy sources, and as a result. Uh, again, it, it, if, you, if you have a network, a grid that's built on a fossil fuel basis and you produce just enough power on fossil fuels to get by, and then you add, you know, 20% more supply from solar, the mm -hmm. prices during the day are going are gonna to plummet 
because that solar produces power when the, when, the, when the light is shining, right? And then it doesn't produce any at night, but you still need some power at night. So while you can build solar and replace some of that fossil fuel generation, you can't replace all of it because you need you do need energy at night. And so that that expansion and this rollout of, of uh, solar energy deployments has caused um, massive amounts of production at the same time of day for the same grid that has no real excess demand during the day. So what do you do with all of that? And, and the answer is that oftentimes the, the grid prices are, are going so low because there's simply not enough demand for all of the power that's being generated. And in, in some cases it goes negative. Uh, it can go negative for certain hours of the day, certain minutes of the day, um, different portions of the day where you have you know, less than peak loads. It really just depends on the nature of the market that you're in and that balance between fossil fuels, storage, and renewable sources, and how those are all generating power at any given moment. So what are the options for a power plant when, when prices go negative? They can, um, can, they, can they turn off their equipment, or is that unfeasible in certain circumstances? They can, some of them. It depends on the type of generation. Um, some of them take a longer time to spool up and spool down, and so if you have a period of, say, three hours of negative pricing, you have to ask yourself, is it really worth it for me to shut down this entire you know, 500 megawatt power plant because my pricing is not great for these three hours? And the answer typically is going to be no. So what do you do? Most of them just suffer that, that, that pricing consequence. And what's ironic about that, that dynamic is those fossil fuel plants that are harder to ramp up and down effectively are essentially left on. And then yeah. when there's an excess of demand, they curtail the renewable sources because they're relatively easy to curtail. You can just you know, stop, stop connecting the, the solar panels and they'll just stop generating energy and that's fine. But the, the challenge is when these things are all turned on, they're producing an excess. And what DPO would suggest is instead of selling that for zero, we're selling that to anybody at a negative price, literally paying someone else to take the power that you've generated. Our solution just says use it for yourself and you can capture at any time you want, uh, regardless of whether there's demand in the overall market, you can capture, you know, X dollars per megawatt, where X dollars is based on the profitability of mining at that at that given time block. Right. So and when it comes to turning your cryptocurrency mining equipment on and off, are there any constraints there that you know, could, could you know, make it difficult to do that on a regular basis? It's actually a very flexible system. And it's one of the reasons that we've come up with this. And, and you know, we, we think of ourselves really as an energy services provider. We're not a cryptocurrency miner. Uh, that's not our primary intention. Our, our intention is to aid the uh, energy industry in solving this problem that they have. And it just so happens that cryptocurrency mining really is almost the perfect tool for this in that, you can interrupt these systems. There's no need to keep them on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Uh, you know, most traditional server farms like Amazon Web Services uh, that host all of this data or a Netflix video transcribing, transcoding um, operation, typically those, those customers want to be on 24 hours a day, right? They don't want any downtime. They don't want their clients to not have access to those files and that data. And so for cryptocurrency, we have no such concerns, right? Your only concern is maximizing your economic value. And if you can do that by turning off your machines for a period of time, or if you just need to because of operational concerns, you can certainly do that and it causes no harm. Uh, you just need to make sure that your, 
you know, allocating enough time to operate that you're getting a return on the purchase of those mining computers in the first place. Okay. Um, I, I, Andrew, I wrote an article for New Money Review uh, a few months ago talking about cryptocurrency mining as, and saying it's the, the riskiest industry in the world because you've got, first of all, the incredible volatility of cryptocurrency prices, which, which um, have an effect on the profitability of the miner. Then you've got the cost of the mining equipment, which in, in the, in the, um, you know, the second, second-hand market, mining equipment also has in, incredible volatility in, in, its, uh, in its pricing. You know, well, to, to what extent does, the, you know, does your business model, um, or to, to what extent is it dependent on certain predictions for the, let's say, the Bitcoin price or the cost of mining equipment, or you know, all the two together? So that's, I'm glad you asked that. It's an aspect that not, not many people fully understand about how this industry works and how the Bitcoin algorithm works, frankly. Uh, and it's, in my opinion, one of the most beautiful mechanisms I've ever really come across. And it's, it, it resets the difficulty such that when Bitcoin prices move dramatically, it causes a change in margin for the miners. And that will cause either more miners to join in, which will then compress that margin, or if the margin goes negative for some because of a fall in Bitcoin price, some of them will have to turn off because they're no longer mining enough Bitcoin to pay their power bill. When they can no longer pay their power bill, they have to turn their machines off. When the machines turn off, those who are remaining are competing against fewer miners. And so what you end up with is you capture your competitor's revenue whenever they uh, have to turn their machines off effectively. And so all of the, the amount of value that's being created by the mining algorithm in these 10 minute increments, it all happens in 10 minute increments. Every 10 minutes, there's a new uh, chunk of Bitcoin created, 6.25 Bitcoin every 10 minutes. And that is uh, awarded pretty much pro rata with your, with your um, mining hash power, the, the amount of computing power that you throw at that algorithm. And you end up sharing in that Bitcoin production. And so what that does is, is because of this difficulty reset, it, it is a governor of how quickly and how slowly new Bitcoin are created. And you can't create new Bitcoin more quickly than the algorithm prescribes. And you can't create more Bitcoin more slowly than the algorithm prescribes. It happens on a pretty fixed schedule, regardless of whether there's one or two computers mining in the world or one or two million. And so that mechanism makes sure that there's never going to be too much. And it also makes sure that there's always, effectively always, going to be a, pro a positive margin for those entities with the cheapest power. Because if somebody operating with, say, $50 per megawatt power is profitable, then you operating with 20 megawatt power will also be profitable. And if, if your peer at $50 per megawatt power has to turn his machines off, you get to stay alive. And now the revenue that he was collecting ends up in your pocket. So hypothetically, there's a scenario in which the price of Bitcoin could fall 50%. But because 70% of the network has power that's too expensive to now maintain their car, their, 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 their machines running, they, they end up turning off. And that remaining 30% is now capturing 100% of the production. So even at half price, you're actually better off than you were before. So what I like to explain to people is this just simply isn't as volatile as you believe. Uh, there's a, a built-in hedging mechanism 
uh, that's part of this industry that cannot be avoided, it cannot be circumvented, that moderates a miner's upside and downside relative to the spot price moves of the underlying Bitcoin. And, and the second part of your question about the computer sourcing, it is a challenge, frankly. There, there are not enough manufacturers of these computers. It is a supply constraint. I believe over the next five to 10 years, that will all normalize and become even, even more institutionalized, such that the computers truly become commodities. Uh, and, and so I think the prices will come down. I think they will, they'll get marginally better in terms of performance. I think they're already getting quite good and that the, the easy gains in computing performance have been had in these, in these units. But the prices should come down, which will, again, offer more margin for the mining operators, which will, again, lead to a, a greater surge in demand for, for power. Right. So, the, so the, 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 the efficiencies that can be um, achieved by designing better chips for the mining of cryptocurrencies or uh, making other improvements to the hardware, you know, you, you're saying that the, you know, the most of those gains have already been achieved and it's becoming fairly standardized, the, the design of these mining rigs. That's, that's my understanding. And look, I'm, I'm far from a hardware design expert. I'm certainly not a computer engineer. The, the, from what I understand, you know, that progression from the early days, like I described, of the, the home GPU unit that was in your, your home computer for playing video games, that has evolved into these customized rigs, these customized computers, and, and frankly, customized layouts. And there's a lot of things going on to optimize the performance of these things. But essentially, that you know, channeling this general computing power into a highly specific purpose has happened. Uh, these manufacturers have gotten reasonably good at doing that. And from what I understand, the, the progression in computing power per dollar uh, of purchase price is slowing. And so you're really not getting the same gain in, you know, the next the next iteration of machine, the next generation of, of iteration of computer type. You're not getting the same uh, jump in processing power that you saw between models two or three years ago. So I believe that is somewhat uh, plateauing. And then, you know, I think these guys are all going to have to compete on cost and try to, you know, continue to produce uh, machines that are one. They're competing on on cost of the hardware, purchase price of the hardware versus total production, but also energy consumption. Because again, the energy component of this is so key. It's such a huge component of the, of the margin of the cost structure here that uh, the, the race is also not only to cheap machines, but the most energy efficient machines as well. Okay. You mentioned earlier, Andrew, that um, you, you, you're encouraging energy producers to look at cryptocurrency mining as an alternative to um, storing excess energy in in batteries. Obviously, there's there's going to be you know very uh, sizable and increasing demand for batteries as we all switch to driving electrical vehicles over the next uh, decade or two. You know what's the what are the pros and cons of cryptocurrency mining vis-a-vis -vis putting excess power into battery storage from the point of view of a producer? Sure. Well, you know, from the producer's standpoint, most of these, uh, at least the ones we're speaking with, are really profit-motivated entities, right? So these are, are huge portfolios on Wall Street that own, you know, 30, 40 uh, gigawatts of power generation scattered around, you know, not only North America, but Europe and, and, and South America, wind developers, solar developers, you know, pretty large entities. So the, the, they're looking at it from a profit standpoint and saying, how can I, how can I increase my margin by developing these, these assets in a more intelligent way? 
And what's going to drive those decisions are that bid process of what exactly is this development, this, this new generation asset being used for. Now, if you're if you're planning on powering a, a middle school with it, then I don't think you want to use it for cryptocurrency mining instead. Right. There's a balance here. It's, this is not going to be the perfect solution for every asset in every jurisdiction, for every owner or operator. It it will make sense uh, in certain applications where you say, you know, I, I don't really need this power. I'm developing this asset because it's it, 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 we're building more wind and solar assets. Maybe it doesn't have a full power purchase agreement associated with it. And I've got some excess. What should I do with that? Should I sell it into the grid or should I you know, mine cryptocurrency with it? And so we view our solution really as uh, one more arrow in the quiver, so to speak. But ultimately, that decision of what to do with that power is going to be based on the best social good. And in some cases, you know, that social good might win out over the economic argument where you say, Sure, we could make more money by mining cryptocurrency with this, but we would like to light up our you know, constituents' homes at night instead. And I you know, mm. completely understand that. That's a perfectly valid reason not to do what I'm suggesting. But there are certainly circumstances where this is going to be the better option. Right. I mean, there are parts of the world where I think energy is being sold at a, perhaps a non-market price where people you know, have been switching off electrical grids to, to, um, to mine cryptocurrencies. But I guess that there's an argument that that's just a, a you know, failure of, failure of the, the processing mechanism rather than uh, something wrong with cryptocurrencies. But uh, I guess it's a, it's a it, it, I mean, I wanted to ask you about the role of cryptocurrencies in setting a, a kind of base price for energy around the world is it possible that we're moving this could um, you know help us move towards a, a global market for energy that of the type that hasn't uh, existed before sure so that you know that would be the ideal frankly and i think it's it's one a combination of a global energy market but also uh, theoretically if it gets that far a, a different sort of monetary system a global monetary system that works much like gold but is frankly easier to use and, and simpler to keep account of so, you know, those two things are, are interlinked. And I think, you know, the, when we spoke uh, a few weeks ago, I had mentioned, you know, you get into this sort of esoteric thought process about what this is and what the nature of this thing is that we're doing and, and why are you spending this energy in the first place to create this digital coin that, you know, theoretically doesn't even exist in the real world. It's just this mathematical output. What, you know, and people scratch their heads and say, what are we doing? You know, does this make any sense at all? I personally believe the answer is yes. And I think the the relationship between our money and the things that we produce with our energy and the sources of that energy are completely divorced from one another, right? Yeah. We, we, we produce um, cheap plastic toys with, with oil and, and fossil fuel energy because we want to consume more stuff and we have an unlimited supply of fiat currency to do that with. There's no linkage between the two. There's no value trade-off in producing more dollars to then throw at this energy proposition. And so I think there's a mispricing there, frankly. And what I would argue is that if you, if, if you could snap your fingers and rebase the entire global financial system around something better than a fiat promise, I would argue yeah. what, better, what better thing than the value of energy, right? I, I, I look at the table that I'm sitting at, the car I drive, my body itself, are all physical representations of energy of and, and the value of that energy, right? It took energy yeah. to create my computer. It took energy to create the pen that I'm writing with. 
uh, are those things being properly accounted for in our monetary system, in our financial system? And I would argue, no, they're not. If you, if you had a money that was directly and inextricably linked to the value of energy and the alternative use of that energy, you'd probably come up with better allocations. And I would argue you wouldn't be in the, in the financial situation with the debt that we're in globally. Uh, and you probably wouldn't be in the climate situation that we're in. Right. So, so you're saying that the reestablishing the link between money and energy would have positive social and economic outcomes for all of us? I think so. Uh, I, I think it would. Whether or not it ever gets that far, I don't know. But I think this direct linkage causes people to rethink what they're doing with their energy, right? And if I'm working in a fa- if I'm building a factory to say I'm going to make make more, you know, cheap plastic toys that you know maybe don't provide that much societal benefit. Or could I just mine cryptocurrency with that energy? What is the actual better usage? Maybe the toys make kids happy and that's uh, the right usage. Or maybe half of it should be diverted into this. Maybe we shouldn't be building, um, you know, twice as much real estate in the world as we need. And people will realize, hey, instead of using this energy production for this, this use that frankly isn't really that necessary, I could just go mine cryptocurrency with it and end up better off. It's, it's an always available uh, alternative channel to, to energy, to, to anything you want to do. It's, it's, it's your opportunity cost of what you're doing. Right. And what's, um, what feedback have you, have you had from the companies and energy producers you're talking to about this, 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 you know, this, this, this potentially innovative use of, uh, of their surplus energy? Yeah, it runs the gamut, to be honest. Uh, most people are surprisingly receptive. I will be honest. I've been, I've been pleasantly surprised with the degree of receptivity that we get from, from people that I didn't really expect it from. Uh, huge, huge players uh, in, the, in the asset management space are looking at this. And again, huge, uh, globally relevant uh, management consulting firms, globally relevant wind and solar developers. Uh, and they understand it. You know, it does take some time. Uh, the first phone call is usually a, an uphill slog, and it's a challenge to get everyone focused and understand how this works and why this is relevant to them. But usually after, you know, an hour conversation, I get them to the point of realizing that, you know, this is something they know close to nothing about. They didn't know they needed to know something about it. And those initial conversations that I have with them typically spurs a lot more thought on their end and, and it creates, you know, um, an attitude of being on the same side of the table as partners. And that's the attitude that the DPO likes to foster is that, frankly, we're exploring all of this as well. And the answers to how best to deploy this and how best to utilize this underlying strategy will um, vary from owner to owner and asset to asset and from generation type to generation type. And so we think that you know, putting ourselves on the same side of the table and aligning ourselves genuinely as partners rather than as counterparties, which is, again, the typical structure that that miners have taken in this industry. And they, they want to, to buy power for as cheaply as they possibly can. And the, the producers want to sell it for as much as they possibly can. And they're, you know, directly in opposition to one another. DPO's strategy flips that and completely and perfectly aligns DPO and the power producer to maximize that upside. So, you know, they, I think most have been quite receptive to that. And, and you know, these conversations are ongoing. Uh, we raised capital in uh, late September. 
we started our own uh, initial pilot mine in November and are producing you know, fantastic returns. We're going to have our computers paid back in about seven or eight months from the time we purchased them uh, and then, you know, continued upside from there. So, you know, they see that as a case study and they recognize that the numbers we're showing them, you know, they, they look too good to be true. But when they start doing a little bit of research and talking with us and realize that this actually is feasible, uh, we get a lot of interest. And we're, I think, very, very close to signing a, a few of these up. Well, that that's eight month uh, period for your cost to be repaid presumably has something to do with uh, the the you know the rise in the Bitcoin price over the last uh, year or so, and also the the point at which you bought your mining equipment. We did get you know we were very fortunate in the timing of our purchases. We bought our equipment in October. Uh, it was deployed in November, and obviously you know Bitcoin has gone on quite a run since then. Uh, the mining difficulty has also increased, so. There is that offset where, like I said earlier, it's it's for a miner, it's never quite as good as as the as the ultimate upside move in Bitcoin. And, and I use uh, several examples, which is, uh, you know, there's there's four real cases where you would say, should I own Bitcoin outright, or would it be better off to mine? And if you if you trace the logic, if Bitcoin goes from here straight to a hundred thousand, well, you know, I think you're better off having just bought Bitcoin straight or bit, bought some call options, right? Why buy mining computers to mine? A little bit of Bitcoin every day over three to five years uh, and try and capture upside that way when you can just capture this quick, violent upside swing. So scenario one certainly favors Bitcoin versus Bitcoin mining. If you scenario two, three and four is, you know, scenario two is a modest five percent annual growth. Scenario three is a, is a modest, you know, five percent annual decline. Uh, and then the fourth scenario is a 50 percent decline in Bitcoin prices. And in every one of those other three scenarios, you're far better off having bought mining equipment. Uh, you'll make more money uh, and you can mine your way out of a downside scenario that you can't get out of just by buying the underlying. So we think that this actually is a hedge within this industry. So it offers you, if you want to be exposed to the crypto space, you can do that by one, buying the coin and two, getting into some mining operations. And that gives you a different um, volatility mix, a different risk risk uh, reward ratio with those two, and they effectively act as a hedge against one another. So right. we think those um, you know those dynamics are are will all play out. Um, but yes, we did get fortunate with our timing. Uh, we have captured some outsized margins, and we we tell people in our materials repeatedly that we believe the trend right now is toward somewhere around a fourteen to eighteen month normalized. Um, normalized break-even schedule. So, you know, that gives you another two to three years thereafter to try to capture some upside with those machines before they sort of become obsolete. Right. Andrew, thank you very much for taking the time to to talk to me. That's been a very interesting chat and it's going to be fascinating to see, you know, it's Bitcoin's energy consumption has been a topic of great uh, controversy, you know, ever since the cryptocurrency hit the mainstream. And it's going to be very interesting to see to what extent the renewable energy part of the mining sector gains ground. Look forward to following that and look forward to staying in touch with you. Thank you, Paul. I appreciate you having me and thanks for the interest. And uh, yeah, hopefully you can share some further updates in the future and we'll keep you posted on our progress. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Money Review podcast, The Future of Money in 30 Minutes. You can find a write-up of this episode at our website, newmoneyreview.com, together with links to any important documents or sites mentioned during the discussion.
If you enjoyed this podcast, please like it, share it, or tell a friend about it. At our website, newmoneyreview.com, you can also sign up to our newsletter, which will keep you informed of all New Money Review articles and podcasts. If you'd like to support New Money Review, you can do so via Patreon or using cryptocurrency. Details of how to do this are on the homepage of our website.